We'll get started in just a minute. A New York minute? <laughs> An Iowa minute. A Connecticut minute. Whatever, whatever that is. Yeah. yeah, Brent knows Connecticut minutes, yes. We don't want to start early, but we'll probably start. Yeah, he'll come probably. Yeah, I think so. Okay. Welcome back, everyone. It's good to be here again. For those of you who don't know, know me, my name's Tom Schmidt, and I've been here a few times talking to you about the reliability of the New Testament. It's kind of a sub-series within our greater series on, on Scripture. And a couple weeks ago when I was with you, we talked about the preservation of the New Testament, and we looked at how the New Testament has been preserved and passed down to us through the generations, and how this is done carefully and reliably. And then the next time I was with you, we talked about the canonicity of the New Testament, and we looked at how the New Testament books were put together, who chose what books were in the Bible, why are some books in the New Testament, some books not in the New Testament. We talked about whether there was some kind of conspiracy theory or something like that, and we saw how God uh, reliably and superintended this whole process to, to preserve and pass down the New Testament to us. Today, we're going to talk about the accuracy of the New Testament. And we're going to uh, see if what the New Testament says is true. Uh, so we know it might have been reliably preserved, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it contains true things. So we're going to look at that in our time together this morning. Uh, we'll investigate whether what the New Testament says about Jesus is true and why its claims are factual. And this pertains especially to the New Testament's central claim that Jesus was crucified, buried, and then resurrected. So those are some things we'll go over today, but first I want to open in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for how uh, you have given your word to us, how you've preserved it and, and gathered it for us through your saints. Father, we also thank you for how your word is trustworthy and how you sent your son Jesus to rescue us from our sins. It's in his mighty name that we pray. Amen. All right, so to begin with, I want to ask a question. Can we trust that the New Testament is accurate and true? We sometimes hear accusations that the New Testament is based on myths and folktales, that it's inaccurate and deceptive. I've heard these claims many times before, sometimes in popular culture, sometimes in the classroom. I'm sure some of you have heard these claims as well. And uh, today, what we're going to look at is that the New Testament is not based on rumors or lies or myths. And indeed, there are several reasons why we can trust its factual claims. Now, these reasons, they, they build on one another. And so we're going to start with perhaps one of the most foundational reasons and then go from there. So uh, 
One reason that we can trust that the New Testament is true and accurate is first and foremost because it's based off of eyewitness testimony. It's not based off of rumor and report or hearsay. And these eyewitnesses were behind the documents of the New Testament and they were in a position to know what Jesus said and did and to report it accurately. So, for example, John, the disciple of Jesus, says this about Jesus, whom he calls the word of life. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. John tells us here that he's preaching not something that he just heard a rumor about, but something that he witnessed, that he saw with his eyes, that he touched with his hands, that he heard directly with his own ears. And Peter, another disciple of Jesus, he tells us the same thing. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty Peter says that in his second epistle. He says much the same thing in his first epistle. In chapter 5, verse 1, he also adds that he was an eyewitness of the sufferings of Christ. And other New Testament authors make similar claims. For instance, Luke, the gospel writer, he says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Theophilus was the person to whom Luke wrote, and Luke tells him that he went to the eyewitnesses. He investigated everything carefully from the beginning so that he, Theophilus, and you all may know the exact truth about what you have been taught. So we've heard from the Apostle John and the Apostle Peter and Luke the Evangelist, but we have more testimony as well. We have the testimony from the Apostle Paul. He gives perhaps the earliest account of the resurrection of Jesus. He says this, For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, And that he appeared to Cephas, that's that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared to me. The resurrection of Jesus is the essence of our faith. And Paul gives his own eyewitness testimony here. And indeed, the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles of Jesus, they concur. They say in the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. The fact that the New Testament is based on eyewitness testimony is so well established that even ancient anti-Christian sources agree. Now, what do I mean by these ancient anti-Christian sources. These sources were ancient writers who attacked Christianity in the second through fourth centuries. They were people like Celsus, Porphyry, Heracles, and Julian the Apostate. They were highly educated, powerful, extremely hostile to Christianity. But even when they were attacking the New Testament, they still attributed its writings to Jesus' disciples. These ancient skeptics 
did not believe that the New Testament documents were written under false names far after the time of Jesus and were hence based on rumors like some scholars try to maintain today. They acknowledged that it was the disciples who wrote them. So if such ancient hostile sources agree that the disciples were ultimately behind the New Testament documents, then I think we can safely conclude that the New Testament documents are not based off of rumor or hearsay. But I want to ask you something more. Even if we can be sure that the New Testament is based on eyewitness testimony, how can we be sure that the eyewitnesses were telling the truth? We all know that eyewitnesses can lie. So do we have good reason to think that these eyewitnesses are being truthful and not fabricating their claims? Well, we have several reasons to trust the claims of these eyewitnesses. Firstly, they did not have worldly motives to lie about the resurrection of Jesus. They did not gain materially from their claims. They did not gain money or fame. They did not gain power or earthly benefit by preaching that Jesus was the Son of God and was resurrected. Not only does the New Testament testify to this, but even those ancient critics of Christianity I mentioned before, like Celsus and Julian the Apostate, even they agree with this. In fact, if you read their writings, they mock the apostles for being poor and uneducated, for being members of the lower class and friends with slaves and minority groups. They knew that the apostles did not gain riches or political power for following Jesus. They knew they were impoverished and they mocked them for it. In fact, far from seeking material gain for their beliefs, the apostles and the authors of the New Testament They knowingly risked persecution and humiliation and scorn and shame and death. Indeed, many of the disciples of Jesus were executed for their faith in Jesus or even tortured. And when the authorities warned them to stop preaching in the name of Jesus and threatened them with punishment, they said this in the book of Acts, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Despite all these threats, they continued to proclaim that Jesus was resurrected. And just look at the outcome of their lives. Peter was executed. Paul executed. John was exiled as a prisoner to the island of Patmos. James, his brother, was beheaded. Matthew executed. Thaddeus, Nathaniel, James, the brother of Jesus, they were all executed. And we have good historical data to support these outcomes. And more than this, we have evidence that many other early Christians suffered the same fate. The fact that the apostles were terribly persecuted for their belief in the resurrection of Jesus is so beyond question that, again, as I've said before, even non-Christian sources agree with this. They tell us that the apostles were persecuted and executed. Sometimes they brag about it. We see this in, for example, the Jewish Talmud, the Jewish historian Josephus. They both claim that Matthew, that Thaddeus, that Nathaniel, and James were executed. Uh, Josephus talks about James, and the Jewish Talmud talks about the rest. Another Jewish document, the Toldot Yeshu, describes how Jesus was executed, that his 12 disciples then spread his teaching among the nations, and that, quote, they were slain. And it even criticizes Peter for teaching, quote, the meek, acceptance of suffering. And the Roman historian Tacitus, he tells of a persecution of Christians in Rome under Emperor Nero that sounds exactly like the circumstances under which Peter was executed. But despite such great persecution, 
The apostles and eyewitnesses, they continued to maintain that Jesus really was resurrected. These sufferings are not something that so many people would each be likely to endure for a claim they knew that was a lie. Instead, it seems far more likely that the apostles were simply being honest and sincere. So the first reason we can trust the eyewitnesses is because they don't seem to have worldly motives to lie. They gain nothing from what they were saying. And secondly, they had everything to lose. They were persecuted for what they said, yet they preached and continued to preach it. And this trustworthy character of the apostles, it was so steadfast that they passed it on down to their own disciples. Just like Jesus, the apostles went on to have disciples of their own. And when we examine the character of these men, these followers of the apostles, we see that they also conducted themselves in the same way as Jesus and the apostles did. They also suffered and were martyred for faith in Jesus. Take, for example, Ignatius of Antioch and Polycarp of Smyrna. Both were disciples of the apostles. Both have writings that remain for us to read, and both of them were executed for their faith in Jesus. In fact, let's look at Ignatius specifically. He was a disciple of Peter, perhaps also Paul, and while he was awaiting his execution for being a Christian, he wrote several letters to churches, encouraging them. And in one letter, he talks about how Peter witnessed the resurrected Jesus. Here's what he says. For Jesus suffered all these things for our sakes in order that we might be saved. And he truly suffered just as he truly raised himself, not as unbelievers say. For I know and believe that he was in the flesh even after the resurrection when he came to Peter and those with him. And he said, take hold of me, handle me and see that I am not a disembodied spirit. And immediately they touched him and believed, being closely united with his flesh and blood. For this reason, they too despised death. Indeed, they proved to be greater than death. And after, this, after his resurrection, he ate and drank with them, like one who is composed of flesh, though spiritually he was united with the Father. Here Ignatius, the disciple of Peter, proclaims the resurrection of Jesus. He says that he knows Jesus appeared to Peter. And for this reason, Peter and the apostles despise death. Why? Because they had seen the one who had conquered death and they knew death had power over them no longer. And Ignatius, though a man condemned to die, he joyfully testifies to this, just as Peter testified to him. So let me summarize. Can we trust that the New Testament is accurate and true? Well, yes, we can. It's based on eyewitness testimony of the apostles, not on rumor and report. And these eyewitnesses are trustworthy because they did not stand to gain anything materially from their claims. They did not have motives to lie about the resurrection. Rather, they risked persecution and death. And in fact, their own disciples went on to do the very same thing. And these points are so beyond question that even ancient non-Christian sources admit to many of them. Well, so far, I've been talking about how the New Testament writers were in a position to know the facts about Jesus and how the New Testament documents were written with the backing of eyewitness testimony. And I've also shown how we can trust that these eyewitnesses were not lying about what they were saying. But let's not stop here. Let's see if we can test the reliability of the eyewitnesses in other ways. Let's not just trust their character or motives. Let's see if we can test their truthfulness and accuracy 
a little more scientifically. After all, eyewitnesses might still have accidentally put in false information. They might have gotten carried away in their great passion. They might have exaggerated things or convinced themselves of something that wasn't actually true. Even if the eyewitnesses were sincere, they might have still been inaccurate. We all know honest people who make wrong statements. So let's do a more thorough investigation here. Let's forget about character and motives. Let's see if the New Testament can hold up to good old-fashioned brass tacks, nuts and bolts, historical scrutiny. And this is what we're going to do. Throughout the New Testament, the authors make numerous historical claims. And we can check these claims against the historical record to see if they're true. So when the New Testament mentions a person or a place or an event, we can check that claim against the historical record to see if the New Testament is accurate. This is just like in a detective case when the testimony of an eyewitness is checked against the facts to see if their testimony can be corroborated by the evidence. And when we subject the New Testament writers to historical scrutiny, we find that the New Testament authors were indeed accurate and they were not in the habit of making up information. Let me show you what I mean. We'll start with some easy basic stuff and then we'll get to more complicated stuff as we go. So first of all, the New Testament authors report the existence of several Roman emperors, and we know from various historical sources that they correctly identify them in their proper historical context. And this comes from various lines of evidence like historical reports, the archaeological record, coins, things like that. You can see a coin of Emperor Augustus on the screen, which Luke talks about. Emperor Tiberius is also mentioned by Luke. There he is. Emperor Claudius mentioned in the book of Acts. Herod the Great mentioned in the early part of the Gospel of Matthew. He's the guy who tried to kill baby Jesus. Herod Archelaus is also mentioned in Matthew. Herod Philip, Herod Antipas, Herod Agrippa, Herod Agrippa II. There's a lot of Herods. It's hard to get them all straight, but the New Testament does. And we could go on for other rulers like Arathos IV, Paul mentions him, Pontius Pilate. This is a famous Pontius Pilate stone, and I know it might be difficult for you to to read it, but on here it says the name Tios Pilatus. It's missing the P-O-N. It's, 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 it's missing from the stone. But anyway, all scholars agree this is an inscription mentioning Pontius Pilate from his time frame. Tom. Yes? Oh, I don't know where the stone comes from. I'd have to check, and we may not actually know. I'd have to see if we know the provenance of it. Um, when I was in Israel, when we were like in Caesarea by the sea or something like that, uh, uh, the, the tour guide pointed to a, a seat, you know, and they had their names on them. They were VIP seats. <laughs> <laughs> At that time, I think in 1999, he claimed that this was the first... Um, archaeological evidence uh, because the seat had... Of Pontius Pilate? So all I know is it's called the Pilate Stone. It is in Israel, so this is in Israel. I don't know if that's part of a back of a chair or not, but we also have lots of other evidence for Pontius Pilate. It's not just this stone. He's mentioned in many historical ancient sources outside of the Bible. Um, Okay, yes, yes, yes. But if we're honest here... 
these names that I've been talking about, they're a little easy to get right. It's like naming the correct presidents. It's not too hard to get those right. So let's do something a little more challenging. It's good that the New Testament get these folks right, but let's see what the New Testament authors do with lesser known figures whom someone would likely only know about if they were well informed. Well, the New Testament authors speak about many people like Bernice, Drusilla, Judas the Galilean, Festus, people even like James the brother of Jesus, John the Baptist, Caiaphas the high priest, Herodias and her daughter Salome, and the list goes on. And when we check the historical record, we see that all of these folks are mentioned outside of the Bible by non-Christian sources and that the New Testament correctly places every one of them in their proper historical context. The New Testament is even correct about a minor person named Erastus, Paul's fellow partner from Corinth. And if you go to Corinth today, you can still see his name emblazoned on one of the paving stones. Erastus seems to have been one of the ministers of public works. And uh, I know it might be hard to see, but the beginning of the E is there, R-A-S-T-U-S. The U looks like a V. Erastus. How do we know that's the Erastus that Paul would Erastus mentions him as a Corinthian minister of, I think, of public works or maybe of some kind of official. And we know that when this name was put down, that that's what the, the public officials who were responsible for laying these things and arranging it would put their names on. So the place matches, the name matches, the, the, uh, the profession matches, and the time matches. A person in the ancient world wouldn't likely know about these things unless they were actually there and witnessed many of these people. And uh, we can even go to the names in the New Testament of humble peasants and workers. Even they can be verified. Now, they can't be verified on an individual basis, but uh, it turns out that, that, but they can be verified in statistically. And let me tell you what I mean. It turns out that every generation and every location has a frequency rate in their choice of names. So when people have children, they, they choose certain names, and every generation has a frequency rate. So, for instance, in the United States, 100 years ago, Betty, Sally, those were popular names. Not so popular these days. We have different names that children tend to have. And you can, you can line up these statistics, figure out what names are popular, look at the frequency rate. And some scholars have done this with ancient names from first century Israel, and they have found that the frequency rate of those names matches up with the New Testament's reports of a lot of Marys and a lot of, a lot of Simons. If you read the New Testament, you're like, everybody's named Mary. Everybody's named Simon. Well, that's exactly what was going on in first century Palestine. And so even those names can be roughly corroborated. Now, we can also test the accuracy of the eyewitnesses in other ways, too, aside from references to people. We can examine geographic references in the New Testament. This map shows dozens of locations mentioned in the New Testament. And guess what? The New Testament correctly locates all of them. It's even correct about little towns near and around Jerusalem, like Arimathea and Bethlehem. And uh, it's also correct about villages in Galilee, even tiny fishing villages around the Sea of Galilee, like Capernaum. Remember back then, folks didn't have maps or atlases or the internet or encyclopedias to look up little places like this. The only way to know about an insignificant fishing village was if you were actually there or you knew someone who was. And the New Testament gets them right. And this is in great, con- great contrast to other uh, documents we've mentioned in past courses, some of those false gospels. Uh, they will mention villages and towns that seem to have no bearing with historical reality. 
But let's go even smaller. The Gospel of John in chapter 4 mentions Jacob's well. Here it is. The Gospel of John speaks of the pool of Siloam where, where Jesus tells a man to go and wash. There it is. The Gospel of John mentions huge stone water jars. Now, this is kind of strange because you think of water jars as smaller and not made out of stone, made out of clay. But these are big and made out of stone. But apparently, that's not what they used to do in first century Judea because here we go. We still have some of them. John did know what he was talking about. And we could continue doing this for hours about New Testament events, customs, contemporary beliefs, various historical phenomena, and all sorts of other things that the New Testament reports as occurring in the first century. And you'll see that when the New Testament talks about events, we're able to historically verify them. It seems then that the authors were not in the habit of making up information. It also implies that the original New Testament documents must have been well-preserved. Because if later scribes were in the habit of messing about with them, then these historical claims would have tended to have been altered and therefore would have tended to not be so precise. But they are precise. Now, it must be said that there are a handful of instances where historical claims in the New Testament seem to be contradicted by what we know from other sources. And I would say that the most prominent, the most egregious example of this is with Theudas the Galilean, whom Luke mentions in the book of Acts, chapter 5. And Luke seems to clearly date this guy to before 39 AD. The problem with this is that the ancient Jewish historian Josephus, he also mentions Theudas, but he dates him several decades later. But rather than concluding that Luke and the New Testament are wrong, I would caution us to withhold judgment given how accurate the New Testament is elsewhere. Perhaps there was a second Theudas, or perhaps Josephus himself was wrong. And in fact, we know Josephus is often wrong. Josephus actually talks about, he wrote multiple books, and uh, he talks about the same period of time three different times, so you can compare his own reports to one another, and he contradicts himself several times. So, in fact, since the advent of modern scholarship, there's always been some historical claims in the New Testament that skeptical scholars dismissed as wrong or made up or otherwise fictitious. They would seize on these and argue that the New Testament authors were historically incorrect and that they were fabricating information and therefore untrustworthy. But time and again, later discoveries have proved the New Testament right and these skeptical scholars wrong. Let me show you what I mean. Back in the day, certain scholars believed that Nicodemus, who came to Jesus by night in the Gospel of John, They believed that he was fabricated by the Gospel of John. Some of them claimed that John must have made up the name Nicodemus to function as an allegory because Nicodemus literally means ruler of the people. And these skeptical scholars thought that John wanted to make a kind of greater point about how even rulers of the people were coming to Jesus, so he made up this guy named Nicodemus. Now, John gives six data points about Nicodemus. He tells us that Nicodemus was a member of the ruling class, that he was a Pharisee, that he was a teacher of the law, that he was very wealthy, that he was associated with Jerusalem, and that he lived in the early first century. And certain scholars thought that this was nonsense and that there was no Nicodemus. But then other scholars started realizing that according to ancient Jewish literature, there was, in fact, a rich ruling family in Jerusalem in the first century, that did have Pharisees and teachers of the law as members, and 
Do you know what name was popular for men in that family? Nicodemus. Nicodemus. It may also be that the Jewish Babylonian Talmud mentions Nicodemus' execution as a disciple of Jesus. The Talmud seems, this is a little tentative, but the Talmud seems to use a nickname for Nicodemus, a nickname that we know is used for people with the name Nicodemus. Um, So we can't be totally sure of that one. But in either case, no scholar can really truthfully claim that Nicodemus never existed because he seems like an entirely plausible historical person. Let me give you some more examples. Uh, In the book of Acts, Luke tells us that there was an empire-wide famine during the reign of Emperor Claudius. For a long time, scholars dismissed this as a pious exaggeration. There was one or two local famines, but no famine gripped the whole Roman Empire during the reign of Claudius, they said. Yet archaeological excavations discovered ancient records on on papyrus in Egypt documenting the annual flooding of the Nile when the Nile would irrigate farmland. Now, it's important to know that Egypt was the breadbasket of the Roman Empire. That's where they got most of their food from when the Nile would do its annual flood and irrigate all the farmland. And um, it it would provide incredibly fertile ground for crops. Well, it turns out that during the reign of Claudius, these papyrus records document that in one year, the Nile badly overflooded, which would have invariably caused the destruction of the crops of Egypt and invariably would have caused a severe famine throughout the empire. In fact, one scholar, Ken Sperber Gap, he says that the official documents found amongst the papyri in Egypt, quote, so supports Luke's count of the universal famine that the accuracy of the statement can no longer be challenged. We can keep going. The Pool of Bethesda, mentioned in John chapter 5, John says that it had five sides, each equipped with an overhanging porch. Now, this is kind of weird. Normally, when you think of a pool, you think of four sides or you think of a circular pool. And this one was extra special because each side had like an, an overhanging porch. For a long while, scholars accused John of making up this piece of information because we had no archaeological record of its existence. Scholars said that the five porches were fictitiously crafted by John to represent five stratas of society or the five books of Moses or some other thing like that. But then, in 1948, archaeologists found this, a pool that scholars now admit is the pool of Bethesda and indeed had five sides. The picture is showing one half of the pool and the archaeological reconstruction, you can see that it actually is a four-sided pool, but then it has a porch going between it, making five porches. So four on the outside, one through the middle, just like John reported. Or we could talk about Galileo. Galileo was uh, the man to whom Paul uh, had a trial before in the book of Acts. Scholars routinely claim that Luke's chronology in the book of Acts was, quote, hopeless and false regarding Paul's trial before Galileo in Acts chapter 18. Other scholars insisted that Luke, the author, most likely placed this trial somewhere between 51 and 54 AD. But these scholars were dismissed. But then in 1913, This inscription was found, which mentions Galileo and precisely dates him to 51 or 52 AD, exactly as Luke claimed. Here's another one. Sergius Paulus, Acts chapter 13, verse 7. Another guy whom Paul preached before. 
Scholars for many years said there was no evidence that Sergius Paulus was a proconsul in Cyprus, like, like Luke claims in the book of Acts. But then this inscription was discovered. And then this one. And these clearly show that a Sergius Paulus was proconsul in Cyprus sometime in the first century, exactly like Luke claims. Skeptical scholars also accused Luke of making up the census mentioned in Luke chapter 2, when Mary and Joseph went to Bethlehem to be registered for Jesus' birth. Our historical sources tell us that the census actually happened years later. Skeptical scholars said Luke was wrong. But other scholars thought maybe there was more than one census, but they were ignored. But then we found this inscription which was shown to clearly speak about not one census, but many censuses. And Luke was vindicated. The same happened with Quirinius. Skeptical scholars also said that Luke was wrong about the governorship of Quirinius in Luke chapter 2. The ancient historian Josephus placed his governorship years later than Luke did. Some scholars tried to solve this by hypothesizing that perhaps Quirinius was governor more than once. But this seemed like special pleading. Then uh, this inscription was deciphered, and then this one, and then this one, and it showed that there was a governor in the very, very early part of the first century AD or the end of the first century BC. There was a governor of Syria who did have two terms that were not consecutive and that the most likely candidate for this governor was, in fact, Quirinius, who therefore seems to have been governor more than once. Luke was right again. And by the way, that was not an uncommon thing in the ancient world. Uh, People were often being shuffled in and out. We can say the same thing about uh, Luke's reference to Lysanias the Tetrarch in Luke chapter 3. Scholars said for many years that Luke contradicted the historical record by placing Lysanias some 50 or 60 years after he really existed. Some faithful scholars suggested that maybe there was more than one Lysanias the Tetrarch. But again, this seemed like special pleading. But then in 1912, we found this inscription. And it proved that there actually were two Lysanias the Tetrarchs. And Luke was right again. And uh, once more, that's not all that unusual in the ancient world. You'll have someone who's a ruler or a governor or a powerful figure, and they often name their son the same name. And that son often goes on or grandson goes on to do the same job. So it's, it's not unusual to find situations like this. Uh, You can, for instance, see this with the Roman emperors, where every single Roman emperor adopts the name Augustus or Caesar. So they all have the same names, all dozens of them, again and again. Same thing happened in other parts of the world, too. All right. These instances teach us that it is never wise to bet against the historical reliability of the authors of the New Testament. It is true that Luke and Josephus contradict one another about the dates of that guy Theudas I mentioned to you. But we may yet find evidence that Luke was right about Theudas and that Josephus was the one who was wrong. Or we may find that both were right and there were two figures of the same name. After all, it's happened before, hasn't it? But I have to say about Theudas that if it turns out that Luke is the one who's incorrect, would this one minor error concerning a minor marginal figure really undermine the overall credibility of the New Testament, given how historically reliable it is with its other claims, especially its important claims. Uh, 
Indeed, the historical reliability of the New Testament is so strong that by some measurements, it gets better every year. Just a few years ago, a ring was found inscribed with the name Pontius Pilate dating to the first century in Jerusalem. And this once again supports the New Testament narrative and it once again bolsters the reliability of the New Testament. Like I say, though, uh, Pontius Pilate is a well-established historical figure. Even if we were missing the ring and the inscription I showed you, uh, he's mentioned in many historical sources other than those. And this is similar to what we saw with the preservation of the New Testament, where every year, every few years, we make more discoveries that that enhance our our confidence in the preservation of the New Testament. The same thing happens with the accuracy of the New Testament also. Okay, so let me summarize. We can be sure that the New Testament is true and accurate because it is based off of eyewitness testimony. And those eyewitnesses were reliable because they don't seem to have gained anything from their claims, and and therefore had had no motive to lie. In fact, they gained suffering and persecution because of their claim about the resurrection of Jesus, yet they persisted in maintaining that Jesus actually was resurrected. And furthermore, their disciples suffered the same things. And even non-Christians admit to much of this, as we saw with writers like Celsus and Porphyry and Julian the Apostate. And lastly, we've just seen how we can historically verify dozens, if not hundreds, of the claims that the New Testament writers make, showing that the authors of the New Testament were not in the habit of making up information, but were quite accurate in their reports. And this even includes instances where scholars charged the New Testament with being wrong, And sometimes they would maintain these claims for decades or generations. But time and again, the New Testament has been proven correct through various archaeological and historical discoveries. But let's do better than this. All I've been doing so far is showing that the New Testament authors made accurate claims about mundane, normal, everyday events and activities. But mundane evidence gives only so much reason to believe super mundane things. The New Testament is right regarding normal, natural claims, but what about supernatural claims? We want extraordinary evidence for extraordinary claims. Can we, I wonder, can we corroborate the miracles attributed to Jesus? Yes, I think we can. This is because the miracles of Jesus were so impressive and so indisputable, so beyond doubt that non-Christians and even anti-Christians admitted that Jesus and his disciples worked miracles. Let me show you what I mean. And uh, what we're going to do here is I'm going to walk you through some uh, claims from some non-Christian writers about Jesus. And we're going to go in sort of reverse chronological order, starting with the latest and then getting to the earliest. So we'll start with a document called the Toldoth Yeshu. Scholars agree this was probably compiled around 600 AD. It's uh, a Jewish account of Jesus. However, we can track the information in the Toldoth Yeshu And that information matches up with with early 2nd century claims about Jesus made by other Jewish sources. So in other words, this document seems to have been compiled around 600 AD, but it's compiled from earlier traditions, and those traditions go way, way earlier, if that makes sense. 
Well, the Toldoth Yeshu, it's, it's uh, very interesting. It's a highly negative account of Jesus trying to portray him as a, as a terrible, terrible person. But it explicitly admits that Jesus had the power to raise the dead and that his disciple, Peter, was able to heal in the name of Jesus. Or this source, the Jewish Talmud. This is earlier, 200 to 400 AD. Again, it has traditions that are probably even earlier. Uh, The Jewish Talmud speaks about Jesus, and it mentions that he had the power to heal people. Porphyry, now we're moving into, uh, from Jewish into pagan territory. Porphyry uh, wrote around the year 300 AD. We can date him pretty precisely. And he was a virulent anti-Christian writer. He also was perhaps the most famous philosopher in the Roman Empire at that time. And he wrote an entire work against Christians. He called for Christians to be persecuted. But in his writings, he also admitted that Jesus worked wonders just like the Bible says. Around the same time, Heracles was writing as well. He was not a philosopher. He was a Roman governor. He was a very powerful man. He called for Christians to be persecuted. And as a Roman governor, he actually had them arrested and executed. And he, like Porphyry, also wrote a book against the Christians. And in this, just like with Porphyry, he too acknowledges that Jesus seems to have worked Miracles. And let's keep going. The Tosefta, this is an early Jewish manual of traditions. It talks of a certain James, whom it calls a disciple of Jesus, who claimed that he could heal in the name of Jesus. And it relates a story about how a rabbi desperately tried to get to James in order to be healed because he was convinced that James truly had this power. Or the Oracle of Hecate. Hecate was a goddess, a a, a Greco-Roman goddess. And these these oracles would would, uh, give out statements. People would come to them and make an offering, and the oracle would give out advice. And the Oracle Hecate confessed that Jesus was immortal. It's one of those oracles that have been preserved for us. Celsus, writing around the year 175, here's another anti-Christian writer. He wrote an entire an entire book against the Christians. And in it, he acknowledges that Jesus worked wonders and that early Christians had authority over demons. If we go to the year 137 to 140, Phlegon, Phlegon is a Greco-Roman writer. He's a chronographer. He's also, the fancy term is also a paradoxographer. He liked cataloging unusual, mysterious, or supernatural happenings. And uh, he's writing in 137 or 140, but he talks about a strange and unusual darkness as well as an earthquake that occurred in 33 AD, (laughs) just like the Gospels say happened at the crucifixion of Jesus. Phlegon also says elsewhere, he mentions Jesus, and he says that Jesus correctly predicted the future, again, just like the Gospels say. Moving earlier, around the year 95, Josephus, he's a Jewish historian. I've mentioned his name several times. He's got a paragraph about Jesus, and in it he says that Jesus worked miracles. And we could perhaps go even a little earlier with a guy named Thalos. He wrote between 50 and 100 AD. We're a little unsure of his dates. And he also reports an unusual darkness And uh, we don't know the context of this one, so this this one's a little tentative, but he seems to have placed this around the time 
or around the year of Jesus's crucifixion as well. But we still have to talk about one of the earliest critics of Christianity and one of the greatest, someone who murdered Christians and then who became a Christian himself. And I'm speaking of someone you all know, of Saul of Tarsus. He says in his own words that he was trying to destroy the followers of Jesus, but then Jesus appeared to him and demonstrated his miraculous power. And after this, Saul of Tarsus changed his name to Paul, and he went on to write many of the letters of the New Testament. And there, Paul talks about how he was a persecutor of Jesus, of Christians, and how he was a violent man, and how he was a witness of the resurrected Jesus. And after many years of ministry and suffering for the name of Jesus, Paul was executed for his faith in Jesus. And we can say similar things about others who did not believe in Jesus, but then changed their mind after Jesus appeared to them. People like James and Jude, whom the Bible testifies, did not believe in Jesus when he was ministering, but who were persuaded after Jesus was resurrected and he appeared to them. And these two men also went on to write letters in the New Testament. This is extraordinary. Remember that ancient authors were more than capable of denying miracles. We see this, for instance, with Cicero, with the Epicureans, with the Atomists, the followers of Democritus, with the Jewish Sadducees, all of whom denied many or even all supernatural things. But Jesus's miracles seem to have been so beyond question that non-Christians and even hostile anti-Christians admitted that they occurred. And some of them even seem to have become Christians themselves. So can we trust that the New Testament is true and accurate? Yes, we can. The New Testament is based off of eyewitness testimony, and we can trust these eyewitnesses because they don't seem to have a worldly motive to lie. They had nothing to gain. In fact, they risked persecution for their claims. And furthermore, their own disciples suffered the same. And on top of that, the claims of the eyewitnesses can be historically verified, and we can even verify their miraculous claims. And even non-Christian sources admit to many of these facts. But if this is not enough for you, then you yourself can test the authenticity of Jesus's miraculous powers. All you have to do is look around the world right now. And this is because the prophecies of Jesus Christ contained in the New Testament are being remarkably and miraculously fulfilled among us. For example, Jesus predicted in Matthew 24, 14, he says this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And if we examine our world today, we see that there is no other message on earth that has reached so many people. There is no message that has gone to so many nations and so many countries. There is no message except the message of Jesus that has been translated into so many languages and has been adopted by so many cultures and has changed so many lives. Jesus' prophecy is being fulfilled among us in a miraculous way. And you are all testaments to this. And keep in mind that when Jesus said this, he was not famous or powerful or popular or influential when he predicted these things. He was a member of the underclass, a carpenter from a backwater in Galilee, 
and he predicted that his message would go into all the world. And so far, it has spread farther than any other, and against all odds, his prophecy is being fulfilled. Jesus predicted many other things correctly. He said that many false prophets and false Christs would come in his name. And if you look through history, I don't think there's a single person who has existed who's had more people come in their name and say they represent them or they are them. Jesus said that his followers would be brought before kings and rulers. And all these things have happened so many times, it is beyond counting. And Jesus predicted all of this when he was still an obscure carpenter from Galilee. And he was right. So, my friends, I've been giving many reasons why the New Testament is worthy of our trust. And if you're interested, I'd be very happy to talk about these matters afterwards or share my sources of information with you as well. But if you're here today and you're still wondering about the person of Jesus, let me give you one final test to conduct concerning the authenticity of Jesus and the New Testament. And this is a test recommended by Jesus himself. He says in the Gospel of John, anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. My friends, if you choose to do the will of God, Jesus has promised that you will find that his teaching comes from God and that you will know that he is worthy of your trust. Let me end in prayer and then we'll take some questions. Father in heaven, we thank you that you sent your son Jesus to minister on this earth, to preach and teach, to work miracles and signs and wonders, Lord, but above all, to suffer for us in order to forgive our sins. We thank you, Lord, that he died, was buried, and three days later rose again, and that he promises that he will raise us up on that day when he comes in glory with his holy angels. Father, I pray that you would increase our trust in your word, that you would help us to grow in it, Lord, to grow in, in the fruits that you give us through your Holy Spirit, to grow in love, in mercy, in peacefulness, in kindness. Lord, help us to forsake evil and to cling to what is good, to repent of our sins, to minister to others, and to lay our lives down just like Jesus did for us. We pray this in his mighty name. Amen. All right, folks, we've got, I, I went faster than I thought, so we've got, we've got time for questions, if you want. We can also, I can also answer questions about any of the other two classes that I gave on the preservation of the New Testament or on uh, the canonicity of the New Testament. Thank you, John. For the persecution of Christians during Rome, <clears throat> what was the flashpoint about why the Romans... <clears throat> Persecuted Christians, was it charges of sedition? <clears throat> because they wouldn't bow down to the, the the Emperor Augustus and his statues, was it they were scapegoating them for the fall of <clears throat> decline of Rome? Like what was the reason why Christians were universally despised in mm. the Roman Empire? Great question. Questions why were the Christians persecuted in Rome? The answer is kind of all of the above. It varies at different times in different places. So uh, the Rome, Rome, we think of Rome as this dictatorship where everybody follows the same set of laws, and that's not really the case. I mean, Roman governors had a lot of latitude, and there were local customs that were obeyed. And, uh, you know, it, 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 
even if there were certain laws, Roman governors could break them. So it, it really depends. But in general, uh, there were a number of reasons. So one was that there were a lot of vicious rumors uh, circulating about Christians. Um, they, Christians were accused of cannibalism, of incest, of things like that. They seem like bizarre claims, but uh, when you think, when people hear rumors about the Eucharist and communion and how people eat the body and blood of Jesus, it makes a little more sense why those rumors would go out. Uh, as far as incest goes, Christians would counterculturally call other Christians their brother or sister. Sometimes, you know, if your wife or husband was a Christian, they would also be your sister or brother. And so that seems to be where those claims of, of incest came from. Uh, these, of course, are completely unfounded and like absurd, but. You know, the rumor mill swirls. People start viewing these folks as, 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 as terrible. Um, and in fact, uh, we have some testimonies. There's, there's some uh, ancient Christian philosophers who, who say, I think, it's, I think it's Justin the philosopher, Justin the martyr, where he says he heard all these horrible things about Christians and how terrible they were, but then he saw them being led to death and refusing to deny their faith in Jesus. And he realized these do not seem like people who would be doing these horrible, horrible things. And he became a Christian himself. So that's one reason. Other reasons are that they refused to sacrifice to the Roman gods. This was expected of all people in Rome. Now, sometimes uh, it wasn't a big deal. I mean, sometimes you just don't go to the festival where they're sacrificing, and you're just viewed as kind of weird. But other times you could get in really severe trouble for this. And um, Usually, for most people, it wasn't a problem because uh, they would just, even if they worshipped another set of gods, they were, polytheists are generally okay with just throwing other gods into the mix. And so they have no problem worshipping a deified Caesar or worshipping a Zeus or Jupiter or what have you. But Christians would would say, no, uh, we won't do that. And that would get them into a lot of trouble sometimes. Um, The only other group that seems to have refused to do that the only other large group were the Jews, but uh, Jews uh, often had like an agreement with the Romans that they didn't have to do that. And at the same time, Christians would be refusing to do it. The, uh, often you have Jewish communities uh, loudly proclaiming that, that these Christians were not Jewish and were doing terrible things. And so it just was this cyclic effect. There were other things like when earthquakes or famine would hit Rome, people would say it's the Christians, the Christian to the lion, the Christians to the lion, and they would round them up. Uh, Similar things would happen that, remember, most people in the Roman Empire, unless you were a male citizen, which in the early part of the Roman Empire was you were a great minority, unless you were a male citizen, you didn't really have many rights. And um, if you were... uh, If you were a woman or you were the wife or the daughter or the son of someone who is not yet of age or you were a slave, then your your father had authority over life and death and so could pretty much do anything they wanted to you. And so one reason Christians were persecuted was just that if you became a Christian and the head of your household didn't like that, you were in real big trouble. And that was many people, if not most people, could be caught up in that. And so the the empire-wide persecutions where you have this empire-wide scale event, those don't happen until later in in Christian history. Those first start happening around the year 250. uh, And there's several empire-wide persecutions where the emperor says, everybody's got to sacrifice if not, you can be tortured or executed, and you actually would have to go get a certificate. And we actually have some of these certificates today still remain, where people have a certificate or receipt that they sacrifice. But before 250, 
There were more local persecutions by governors or mobs or things like that. So it was varied. Yes? What about the Old Testament? What about it? <laughs> yeah, you've given us all this background for the New Testament, but do they have, are there big things in the Old Testament that they can't verify? Or uh, are there mostly everything is verifiable like it is with the New Testament? So it depends what you mean by big. Um, part of the problem with the Old Testament is that the, old, the later you get in history, the less historical sources we have. And so the Old Testament goes back so far. So, for instance, Herodotus is usually thought of as the earliest historian to write, and he wrote in like 450 B.C. or something like that. And that's when the Old Testament ends. So, so the Old Testament goes so far back that we only have limited number of historical sources to use. Um, some of them are good, like, like in certain parts of Babylon or Egypt, we've got good sources. But in most parts of the ancient world, we don't have hardly any. And so there's also, if you carefully read the Old Testament, there's huge swaths of it, like in Genesis, like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. These are just semi-nomads going around in the desert. I mean, we wouldn't expect to find anything about someone like that from 4,000, 3,000 years ago. Uh, so in some ways, we do have some fantastic archaeological discoveries that corroborate certain parts of the Old Testament. We also have uh, gaps where we just don't have other sources. The sources don't really exist. Um, and that's to be expected. I mean, any, any part of the world, you would expect that in 3000 BC or 1500 BC. But then we do have places where uh, the big one is probably the Exodus in Egypt, where uh, the Bible talks about um, Hebrews being enslaved by the Egyptians and then these terrible plagues coming on and then hundreds of thousands or even like a million Hebrew slaves coming out of Egypt. And the problem is that we don't, we do have evidence that there were Semitic or West Asian slaves in Egypt who worked as bricklayers. And so the, roughly that there's a corroboration there. We, we do have... Um, other bits and pieces of suggestive evidence. There's a papyrus from Egypt that talks about these terrible plagues being visited upon them that sound roughly like what we find, but it's hard to date the papyrus. It's hard to know what's being talked about. Uh, the, and then to have a million people going through the desert is, you'd, you would think sources would mention that more than they, than they do, although again, this is so long ago. Um, so there's a couple possibilities. Uh, one is that the, the Hebrew, in, in the Hebrew Bible, the uh, numbers that are used, sometimes ancients didn't use numbers like we do, like they did use them for math, but sometimes they, they had deeper meanings, like the number 40 in the Bible. Sometimes it's like, uh, maybe that's not a mathematical term, it's a general term. Um, so some people think that's what those numbers mean. It's not actually a million, it's to represent a lot of people. Other things are that if you read the what what the... Uh, Exodus and the Old Testament says very carefully, um, it uses this Hebrew word where it says like 600,000 uh, men were part of the Exodus. That's where we get our million number because if there are 600,000 men, then you would presume there's 600,000 women plus children plus everything. But that word for, for a thousand can also be translated as clan or family. And so it could be that what's going on here is that, the, that it's meant to say 600 families or 600 clans, which is significantly less than, than a million people. So, uh, but these are things we're still waiting to discover. Um, uh, you've seen in the New Testament. I mean, if we gave this talk 100 years ago, 
Lysanias the Tetrarch, the Pool of Bethesda, Quirinius, the census. I mean, we'd have all of these things that would be explicitly contradicted seemingly by the historical record. But later excavations have discovered that actually we've either misinterpreted the historical record or sometimes, we've, most of the time, we've interpreted it correctly. It's just there was another event or there was something else that, that, that happened that we didn't know about. So I would say that uh, for the Old Testament, it's very good by very ancient historical standards. But it's not as good as the New Testament, which is you would expect a higher level of corroboration given that it's earlier in time. Yeah, so we're just going to have to trust God, guys, that he's faithful. Yeah, you know, if it was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. Yeah. Um, you mentioned early at the beginning of this talk about um, the resurrection as an event that uh, begs extraordinary evidence. Uh, mm-hmm. Is there any plan down the pipe for a class about that. Oh, uh, we could do that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a class about the resurrection. Yes, I, I love looking at the five or six accounts of the resurrection that we have in the Bible. Um, I didn't have time to bring that up, but people will often claim that when you read the accounts of Jesus's resurrection, so you get Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John give an account, Paul gives an account, and then Luke gives an account again in the book of Acts. So there's kind of six of these, and people will claim that these are irreconcilable with, with one another and that they, they are inherently contradictory. And uh, I think actually it's quite, it's quite the opposite. I think that they, they actually work together very, very well and are what you would expect. Uh, you know, if you watch uh, true crime shows and detective stories and people have different versions of events, it sounds exactly like that, where people are saying stuff and uh, the, the, these, these, where the way they're portraying events is um, individual from their perspective, but they also complement one another very, very well. We can talk more about that if you want, but yeah, a class would be great. I, I, I think yeah. that'd be if, awesome. If five, if five people for me are saying the same thing exactly word for word, for me, they're lying. <laughs> yes, they're colluding, I know. There's a great, uh, if we do a class, I'll bring this up. There's a wonderful article. Do you remember that famous picture? It's called the Tank Man picture in Tiananmen Square in the 80s where oh, that man yeah. is standing in front of the tanks. Yeah. Well, the New York Times like, did a 30- or 40-year retrospective on that. And this article is amazing because it turns out there's actually four pictures by four different photographers of that man. And they all show slightly different perspectives. And the New York Times went and interviewed each of those photographers like 30 years later and was like, tell us what happened. And then they each wrote a paragraph or two about what happened. And comparing these four together, it was amazing. Like one of them says... Uh, the, the police came and took him away. Another says people from the crowd came and took the man away. Another says it was the secret police that came and took him away. And you start thinking like, well, if it was the secret police, they would have looked like people from the crowd. And then one guy says he was holding, he was holding bags. Another says he was only holding a bag, you know, plural versus singular. And you look at the pictures, and some pictures it looks like he's just holding one bag, but then other pictures it's like, no, he's got a clump of bags right there. And so all of these, they work together, and it's exactly, I think it lines up with like those photographers in Tiananmen Square. I think the testimony ends up like that, where they complement and actually inform one another uh, instead of contradict one another. Well, there was a tank, there was a guy, yeah. and there was a Tiananmen Square. Yeah, exactly. exactly. That's not evidence to say there was never a tank. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Other questions? Amos. Uh, so you, you talk a lot about how there's corroboration between the Bible and early 
secular and Christian writers. Mm -hmm. And in terms of what they said um, helps establish the credibility of the New Testament from um, independent reviews or Mm -hmm. perspective. What I'm wondering is, is is there content from those other sources where we might learn interesting things that are credible about Jesus or the early Christians uh, that you know would be interesting, you know, not on par with the New Testament, of course, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which might, you know, are there more stories about Jesus or the apostles that um, yeah. stated without like putting it on par with the New Testament, but which you know, right. in principle right. one could do maybe a sermon on it or mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, so the question is, do we have other information about the New Testament or New Testament people outside of the New Testament that we could, we could, uh, that would be edifying for us or useful for us to some degree? Uh, Yes, yes, there is. And I would say that those come in two forms. So one way is that sometimes we get evidence from these external sources, which doesn't give us new information about something that, or a person or something that actually happened, but helps us understand an event in the New Testament better. So for example, uh, his, this is an easy example. If you read the ancient historian Josephus, he covers the history of the, of the Jewish people in, first, in the first century AD. He also was from the first century AD. And you'll notice that something he talks about again and again and again is that the, the, the Jewish people were horribly oppressed by taxes. They're constantly arguing about them. How should we pay this? Should we not pay this? It's a huge huge hot button issue. And you take that and you read where you've got these Pharisees, these sneaky Pharisees coming up to Jesus, trying to trap him with this question about, should I pay taxes to Caesar or not? And you realize that they are asking him like the most loaded possible question in public to try and catch him. And uh, there's numerous examples of that where we will, we will find that uh, something that, that we, we understand. I mean, we know they were trying to catch him with that tax question. But it really brings, brings up the, the level of tension when, when you read that. Um, so there, there's various things like that that help us. But in terms of, like, do we have more information about Jesus or the disciples that we don't have in the New Testament... That, so I, I had that quote, it's many slides ago, so I probably won't be able to get there. Um, but that quote by Ignatius of uh, Antioch, where he, that was, I lost the whole thing, um, where, where he talks about Jesus appearing to, to uh, Peter, um, that is, is uh, probably some of the closest we'll get to a story about Jesus that is may not be in the New Testament, but that may actually be be accurate. Although you you could say that he's here talking about what John or Luke talked about, because John or Luke, especially Luke, talks about something pretty similar to this. But Ignatius may not be getting it from Luke at all. He may just be telling it like he heard from from Peter. Um, there's another example. So if you read really carefully through the Bible in the resurrection sequence, there's a mention where, where uh, no, it's in First Corinthians. Paul mentions that Jesus appeared to James, but we don't have any account of that at all. And there is an, a document that just talks about how it happened. Um, I don't know if we should trust that, though. It might be like a later, much later legend that's trying to fill in the, the accounts. Um, we do have... We do have uh, 
I'm just scanning my brain for more Jesus stuff before I move to the disciples. Okay, there, here's another one. There's another ancient Christian writer. His name is uh, Justin, the philosopher, Justin Martyr, whom I mentioned once. He mentions that when Jesus was baptized, that uh, there was a light that appeared also. So sometimes you get these little things like, I don't know, the spirit comes down like a dove and then this light is on the water. I, I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe that happened. Um, most of the extra stuff we know is about the disciples. And that's where we get more stuff. Um, for instance, uh, according to very early Christian tradition, Simon the magician, Simon Magus, uh, that was not the end of Simon Magus in the book of Acts. He went on to oppose the apostles, especially Peter. He even went to Rome to, to track Peter down. Uh, that's said again and again. Um, we know that uh, John, the disciple, the apostle, went to Ephesus uh, and Irenaeus uh, gives us a story about John. Irenaeus was a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of John, if that makes sense. And so he's telling us this kind of secondhand story that he heard about John, about how he was going into, you know, in the, in the Roman Empire, they would have these communal bathhouses where you would go in and bathe, and that John was in there, and this heretic named Serenthus showed up, and he quickly ran out and said, we got to get away from this guy. Um, so stuff like that, uh, you know, they do, they are interesting, these stories about the apostles. You know, you have to be careful because so many of these stories are much later and we just don't know if they're accurate or not. Um, so what, yeah. what, what, is the, what is the problem, in simple words, with the Gnostic Gospels? Uh, you should have come to the class two weeks ago. <laughs> it didn't make the cut. Yes. Yeah, great question. So the, the problem with them uh, is that, first of all, the Gnostics, most people aren't aware of this, the Gnostics accepted the, the canon of the mainstream church. They just added to it. So they're not really rejecting stuff. They're just adding to this. Um, the problem with it is that they, they don't seem to have any grounding whatsoever in first century Jewish history. They seem to be written like Jesus from, from a Greek, a much later Greek philosophical background. And they, uh, so, so all the stuff that we just did with the New Testament, where we're looking at names, dates, places, events, happenings, can't do that with the Gnostic Gospels. Another thing is that contrary to, to popular perception, the vast majority of Gnostic Gospels are not even accounts of Jesus's life. They don't even pretend to be. They're dialogues of a risen savior where he has this extended dialogue um, or it's just a sermon, or it's a letter. So most of them don't even claim to be accounts of Jesus's life. They are just theological musings. Um, other reasons why is that uh, no, there's no evidence that the people who uh, are, the, the titles of the Gospels are ascribed, that they actually wrote them. So like Gospel of Mary, Gospel of Peter, there's no evidence that they wrote these. All, scholars are, are united in believing these are from the second or third centuries. Um, and in fact, that, that ancient critic, Porphyry, whom I've mentioned a bunch of times, he talks about the Gnostics. And he says, oh yeah, they're just making up false titles for these things. But then when he's dealing with the four gospels and the writings of the New Testament, he doesn't say that. He seems to accept that they're, that they're accurate. So, uh, you know, they don't seem rooted in Judaism at all to any degree. Um, they, they can't be historically verified. They seem to be written at a very late date. They follow. They're all united uh, behind this Gnostic myth about how you need to have this knowledge in order to come to salvation. And um, 
it, it contradicts Judaism. I mean, most of them have this idea that, that the creator God is evil. And like when you read, if we, I mean, if when you read Genesis, God makes everything good. They got to do a lot of hermeneutical running around to get around that, or they'll just reject the, the passage. And it just seems the idea that Jesus or the apostles, these Jews from first century Palestine, would have believed that the Old Testament God was bad just doesn't, it just doesn't make sense. It seems much more like someone who's following Platonic philosophy who believes the material world is evil. That's what seems like is going on here. And, and I think that is what's going on, is that they're trying, to, they're trying to take the teachings of Jesus and mash them together with Greek philosophy, and this is kind of what, what's coming out. Yes? Um, so it seems like, um, like modern Christians have been privileged by yes. the gospel that has been preserved yes. by the persecutions and acceptance from the past Christians. Mm-hmm. What do you think are our role as like, people who've been entrusted with the gospel? Yeah. And what are some like, contemporary threats to the gospel? That's a great question. Uh, let me make a comment first. I, I just want to emphasize like, how uh, privileged and blessed we are. I mean, if you go back even 100 years ago, people didn't know the stuff we know. If you go back 500 years ago, the only test you could do was that last test that Jesus said, you know, uh, if you follow, if, if you uh, choose to do the will of God, you will know that I come from the Father. Uh, because if you're living in the middle of, you know, the, some far-off place and you can't read or write, uh, there's really nothing you can do when you're presented with, with the gospel message other than seek God's guidance directly. Um, and so we're in this position where we have all this stuff that most Christians throughout most of history didn't, didn't have. Some of the earlier ones might have had this kind of stuff, but... But they were facing horrible persecution and death and everything. So it brings up a good question of, like, what, what do we do? Um, and I, I think uh, we follow Jesus. We, we see what he wants us to do. What, what is our, we each have our own callings, and we, we discern from the Lord what that, are, what that is, and we carry our cross as best we can, humbly knowing that um, I think God is going to hold us to the standard of the things he's given to us, and he's given us a lot. I also think that we should always be careful. I've mentioned this a couple times in my other classes, but that this information that I presented, I mean, it's great. It's wonderful. This is my career. Like, I love this stuff. But this, this doesn't really get at Jesus directly. In order to get at Jesus directly, you've got to know him. And that's what matters. And so some of this information can be extremely helpful for people. Uh, and can bolster their faith, but other people work differently. For others, it, you know, it doesn't. It's not exciting for them. And and uh, ultimately, uh, God it, it, following Christ is not about how much you know or even how certain you are of these little facts. It's you know, Jesus on that day, He's going to ask, "Did you know? Do you know me?" And and that's what we want to we want to keep in mind. Seek Him. Um, and this is a an important. Uh, these are important things. Um, but they're only stepping stones to the to the ultimate goal. Josh Mandel said that in the introduction to his book, Evidence That Demands a Birth, mm-hmm. you'll never be able to argue anyone in the kingdom of heaven. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I agree with that. We've gone over. Uh, I'm happy to ask, answer more questions, but if you've got to go, you've got to go. But otherwise, thanks for coming. I think we have one more class, right, John? What's the topic on it? Uh, we're going to be looking at 
given all these things about the scriptures, uh, how, how do they come to make a difference in our lives? Uh, so we're going to look particularly at uh, how the word of Christ, the gospels, uh, can come to dwell in us richly in transforming us. So we're mm -hmm. Particularly at meditation. It's kind of the capstone in application of these things. So, yeah. All right, stay tuned. How to, how to, how to have the word of Christ come to dwell in you richly. All right. Thank you so much, everyone.